Welcome to the podcast of the Conservative Middle East Council. Hello, I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of CMEC. On February the 24th, a bus driver became the first person to be tested positive for COVID-19 in the island kingdom of Bahrain. He had returned from a pilgrimage in Iran a few days previously. By that time, the eminent British public health expert Professor John Ashton was already on the ground in Bahrain, helping the kingdom to coordinate its own response to the growing pandemic, a response he would later describe as exemplary. Professor Ashton was spotted by none other than His Royal Highness the Crown Prince of Bahrain, Sheikh Salman bin Hamad al-Khalifa, who had seen him being interviewed on Sky News a few weeks earlier. Days later, Professor Ashton was on the plane to Bahrain. Well, I'm delighted to say we're joined today by Professor Ashton, if I may call you John. Welcome. First, can you tell us briefly about your reaction when you were contacted by Bahrain? Uh, Well, it was a surprise, I have to say, but it was a very nice surprise. And once I understood from the Crown Prince's team what they were expecting of me, it was very exciting because he was asking for me to come in and be very critical and look at the response that they were beginning to make and were planning and to identify any weaknesses. And this was a wonderful task for me. Wonderful. And I'm delighted to say we're also joined by Dr. Jamila Al-Salman, who's consultant in infectious diseases, geriatrics and internal medicine at the Salmania Medical Complex in Bahrain. Now, just to give a bit of context, the population of Bahrain is around 1.2 million people around half of whom are non-nationals. So, Dr Jamila, what was the situation in Bahrain when Professor Ashton arrived? Thank you very much for having me. And I think when Professor Ashton came to Bahrain, we were in the planning process and we have our already national task for combating COVID-19. When Professor Ashton actually came to Bahrain, we were in the first like month of working. We've been working and planning how to take care of this COVID-19 issue before it's been a pandemic. And we were looking for an outsider with his experience to help us and to criticize us so we improve what we've been doing. Wonderful. And to confirm, you were doing this before the first case of COVID was reported in Bahrain. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a major, major point in our success of combating COVID-19. Uh, Since the first cases announced in China, uh, we actually started the planning from January. We tried to do a lot of measures to uh, decrease the first cases coming to Bahrain. And we established uh, a lot of protocols, guidelines, and training just to make sure before we have the first case, we are ready for it. Because as you stated, the first case came to Bahrain on 24th, and we diagnosed it in Bahrain 24th February. But our planning starts in January, which is probably two months later than we started to plan, where we're ready for, where we're ready actually for seeing this case. What date did you arrive in Bahrain, John? And what did you find the situation to be there when you arrived? I arrived on the 21st of February and the task force and the war room had been set up on February the 3rd. What I found was the Crown Prince had been very proactive. He'd been concerned that they might not have everybody on the same page. And one of the first challenges was to try and get a narrative that everybody could 
buy into about what was going on and what needed to happen. But the task force itself was well established under the clinical direction of Dr. Manaf, who's a military doctor of infectious diseases. They have a team, a multidisciplinary team of, I think, 26 people from clinical backgrounds, managerial backgrounds, information scientists, and so on, well set up in this war room, a good-sized room, with a, a screen with the Johns Hopkins data on a live feed, and getting live feeds in already from different parts of the system, so that it was really shaping up to be a control centre that could pull everything together. And what were your first actions, John, on arriving in Bahrain? Did you do a tour around? How did you set about this quite large task of criticising and assessing Bahrain's response? Well, I was assigned uh, two young doctors to accompany me and to help me. And what I did was what I describe as classical shoe leather epidemiology. I, I walked I didn't walk everywhere, but when I got there, I walked to the all the hospitals and the clinics that were going to be involved, to the airport, the seaport, the causeway road over to Saudi, later to the main prison and to the housing blocks for immigrant workers and so on. So this is what I would call shoe leather epidemiology, getting out and about, really seeing what the situation was on the ground, interrogating people really quite forensically to identify where the weak spots might be in the control of infection. What did you find? What were the gaps that you found and what key recommendations did you begin to make? Well, after that first visit in February, in the end, I think I made about 15 recommendations. And what was delightful is is that pretty well all of them had been implemented by the time I went back about three weeks later. But they covered a range of things from having standard operating procedures in place for each part of the clinical system and making sure that they were all standard and people were doing different things in different places. One of the most important things from that first visit, though, was when I visited the public health laboratory and it became very clear from talking to the staff there that there wasn't going to be sufficient testing capacity unless we did something quite quickly. They only had two PCR machines for doing the testing, and the capacity was only 800 tests a day, which if you're doing two tests on each person means only 400 people a day. Can I just ask, what what is PCR for listeners who may not be on top of these terms? It's the polymerase testing machine that does the test of whether you actually now have got the virus to be distinguished from the antibody test, which is the test that tells you whether you've had the virus. Thank you. So they only had two machines with a capacity for uh, 800 tests a day, equivalent to 400 patients each having two tests. And we calculated on the back of an envelope that really we needed to have another three, three machines to get it up to the thousands a day. And the staff said to me at the time, they said, you need to tell the Crown Prince this because otherwise it might get stuck in the bureaucracy. And if you tell the Crown Prince, he can authorise the purchase of those machines today, straight away. And that's exactly what happened because I was seeing him in the afternoon and I I said to him, this is what we need to do. And he authorised that and they got them in. And this was really critical because in the end, 
Bahrain has done a phenomenal number of tests. I mean, it's equivalent to about a quarter of the entire population has been tested, far more than the United Kingdom has done. And one of the machines that they got on this order was able to do a thousand tests a day at the airport, which was critical in terms of that weak spot of the international airport and people coming and going. So that was very important. And I think this got them off to a very good start in February of being able to get to grips, not least with the large number of religious pilgrims who'd been off to the holy sites in Iran and were stranded there and were going to have to come home at some point, but would all need to be tested. Dr Jamila, it must have been quite hard to accept criticisms when you've been working so hard on your own response. How did the system accept criticism and how important do you think that listening to criticism was in your response? Uh, well, actually, it was really a pleasure. And the main purpose uh, of having um, and, you know, an external uh, expert to look into what we are doing, it was that was addressed by the, His Royal Highness, the Prince, that, you know, we need, we need to be better. That's the main aim, how to do it better and how to really do it well and be ahead of the pandemic, not to be late for the pandemic. The main aim was for the visit and for asking an external expert to come actually is to look into what we have and build on it. And this is where you have and a major success of our plan in Bahrain is the leadership committing. Is His Royal Highness, the Prince Salman bin Khalifa, bin Hamad al-Khalifa, where really, really, it makes a big difference. So whatever Professor Ashton has mentioned, it was very great for us because we were building, we were trying to do the testing. So Professor Ashton, you know that when you came, you were talking about 400 tests per day. Now we are running, running 10,000 tests per day. And this has been going over months. So the testing strategy has been expanded to the maximum. We are doing a lot of contact tracing, that's from public health lab, and a lot of epidemiological forecasting and modeling to see where we are and where we are going. The, the medical side, the isolation center, how we look into it, the quarantine services. Then we came up with the treatment and discharge protocol and the digitalization. You know, in Bahrain currently, we have thousands of beds ready for COVID. And we are really expanding as the day go because we all know that the COVID-19 is lasting for a while with us. So we have to be ready for even more. So we are planning more than six times the capacity of the current hospital in Bahrain. That's what we have currently. Professor Ashton also mentioned about, you know, our people who were outside and they have to come back to Bahrain. And we had a big plan for the repatriation. We were planning to bring people and test them and follow them just to make sure that we are doing very well and we don't, you know, let our cases get inside without good tracing. We have a lot also built within the plan about the economic. You know, in Bahrain, we have a very good example about the economic package. Uh, there was a lot of free utilities, deferred loan payments for the people because, you know, it will affect the economy. So there was deferred loan payments for months for the people living in Bahrain, citizens or residents, so that they will be more comfortable even with the stress of this pandemic. We took a lot of measures in the educational, like, you know, you said the first case was a bus driver. So actually, we were the first country to close school, not because there was an outbreak, just to make sure that we have the time and plan it forward and protect all our people. And we shift to online learning as, as of that time, since February. A lot of social media campaign planned very well. And I think this is very critical to any country dealing with COVID-19 is that 
it's really important because you have to have a good amount of transparency. You know, whatever result I'm having, I'm in the team or the public health lab, the people have it at the same time. So that's where the trust between the public and the services is very important and how we are providing them this information. A lot of we did with the environmental waste disposal, uh, sewage plan, you know, it's a lot of issue regarding it. So we try to make more and more of it. And what Professor Ashton mentioned about the war room, we have a 24-hour operational war room. Uh, it's really helpful and it was really a major driver because they are monitoring 24 hours a day all the data about positive cases, tracing them, transfer between facilities, treatment results, discharge results. So we have this data at national level from each centre. Thank you so much. And just a reminder, you're listening to the CMEC podcast with me, Charlotte Leslie, and I'm talking to Professor John Ashton, the public health expert, and Dr. Jamila Al-Salaman, consultant in infectious diseases, geriatrics and internal medicine at the Salamia Medical Complex in Bahrain. And we're talking about the work they've done together coordinating Bahrain's response to the coronavirus. Dr. Jamila, if I can come back to you again, It sounds like you have a very direct command and control structure with the crown prince himself taking very direct responsibility for the kingdom's response. Is that the case? And did that help Bahrain's speed of response? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. This is a great question. I think, uh, and I absolutely, not 100%, major, major success point for Bahrain combating COVID-19 is the leadership commitment and his royal highness vision from the beginning. So our plan in Bahrain since January was to plan for the next one to two years, even for the testing capacity, the bed capacity, the treatment, the protocol, medical equipment, even the personal protective equipment, the number of masks. You know, that was his royal highness was following, even the details to make sure and ensure that we have enough to deal with this till the end. And really, that's the leadership commitment that everybody needs to make it really successful and work at the end. And we are very proud of it. Thank you. Professor Ashton, is that something that you found facilitated your engagement with Bahrain, a clear command and control structure? Yes, but it's more sophisticated even than the command and control, really. I think that the leadership dimension with the Crown Prince was quite remarkable, you know. This is a man who's very intelligent. He's got a real clear vision and, and he's a strategic thinker. But, you know, he's a history graduate, a history graduate from the University of Cambridge, actually. And so he's got a sense of history and understood the potential harm of an epidemic like this from previous pandemics in world history. But also, as a humanities person... He was really on top of the science. So it was a very joined up uh, set of conversations I've, I've had with him. And he was able to take the oversight. He was hands on in a strategic sense. But you've also got the Supreme Health Council, which meets every day, which I met e- each time I was visiting on a number of occasions. And where you're able to have around the table some of the key players from the country, from the government and so on. But then you've got this great team in the task force. So you've got three groups, really, all working together. And I think coming back to that question about taking criticism, I mean, 
you know, we all know in our personal lives, it's not easy to take criticism. It needs to come in the right way. And you need to have a trusting relationship with the person doing it. Now, I was very lucky because they're, they're great people and we all got on very well from the beginning. And when I was going around and I was saying, look, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to have to interrogate you about some of this stuff to really get to the bottom of how the things are. And everybody was very welcoming and willing to go along with that. So I think what we've got here is real leadership, but joining things up and making sure that the whole system was going to be attended to. So it was fertile soil for the sort of feedback that I was providing. What difference did Bahrain being an island make to your ability to respond? You've called Bahrain's response textbook public health, but critics would say, well, it's a very small island, so it's a lot easier. What difference did that make? I think islands ought to be easier, but the UK's not done very well, and that's an island. Uh, New Zealand's done well, and that's a big island. I'm interested more in the population size dimension of this. I think population of Bahrain between one and two million. And as we've gone along with this, and as we've seen in the United Kingdom, where the criticism has been of being highly over-centralised and trying to run everything from London, what we're now beginning to see is that now that the local public health directors and teams have been put in charge of this next phase, they're beginning to achieve much greater results. And I think when you're dealing with a population of one to two million, then people know their own communities. And and that's what's so important, because if you have a, a rich pattern of different races, different language groups, different faiths, then it's really important to have that grasp of how you relate and how you take people with you. I mean, in Bahrain, we, we early on, we had to stop Friday prayers. We had to stop pilgrimages. Similar things have had to happen in the UK with the different faith communities because faith congregation has turned out to be one of the weak spots in all of this, where people get together. You know, there was a, an increase in cases in Bahrain during Ramadan, when families get together to socialise and and catch up and all of that at the end of a religious festival, that's a that's a danger point. And you're more likely to be able to influence people to change their behaviour if you're known locally and trusted. And that's why I think, you know, in a sense, Bahrain is a big village. I mean, it's a big village of one to two million people, but so is Manchester, so is Liverpool, so, so are the northern cities, so is, are the parts of London. If you function at that level, I think you've got a much better chance of delivering what you need to. So a Bahrain bite-sized breakdown of the United Kingdom would help our response to COVID, is what you're saying? Absolutely. And that is the evidence of public health in the past. And it's the evidence unfolding on a daily basis now. Dr Jamila, from the outset, as I understand it, Bahrain's strategy was focused on trace, test and treat in that order. Now, that requires quite a lot of trust between the people and the authorities doing that. You've got a very half the population of Bahrain are non-Bahrainis. There are different languages. How did you manage to implement that tracing, testing and treating with all those challenges? 
I think that based on you are ready, you have a plan, you build your capacity, you have a media because we have a national campaign for COVID-19 where we started earlier to have a lot into public about how to prevent the transmission, how to deal with COVID, COVID cases if you have it, if you have symptoms. We have a hotline, which is not triple nine, triple four. It's very famous in Bahrain. People are calling 24 hours. We are thousands of calls per day. For anything related to COVID, they can call at any time. And we have a team. It's, you know, a couple of hundred people working behind this hotline just to approach us and to ask any question they have. The same time, you build your capacity. You have a connection line. You have a media plan, how to address it, how to address people, and have a high degree of transparency. And I think in Bahrain, because we have really, as you said, maybe more than half or half of the population maybe is resident there, but they've been living here and are from different, you know, you know, backgrounds. But we are common in one thing. We share everything. We are transparent. We, met, we send the same messages and even in different languages, however it needs, how many languages, we send the same educational messages. So we've been in contact with all of these, everybody, whether they are working as a frontliner or different governmental or non-governmental uh, institution to make sure they have the correct information, they can reach us and we can help them. So we've been doing tracing, a lot of tracing contact. We build our capacity and then we were getting people from the time they reached the airport as positive. And you know, Bahrain probably, you know, one of the countries that we were keeping people inside in, in facility isolation, even if they don't have no symptoms. So we didn't let people going to home if they are without symptoms. So we're trying to keep everybody in just to maximize the level of protection to the others and make sure that we don't increase our numbers. So I think it all goes to proper planning, addressing the different level, different level of education, different backgrounds for the people, having a good hotline system that can answer the people have accessible testing center, and this is where we have our exhibition center, a major center, which can accommodate 4,000 walk-in patients. And at the same time, we have the manpower and the bid capacity to accommodate all these cases. Dr. Jamila, thank you. I guess in a pandemic, you're asking people to take some pretty draconian difficult measures which often impinge on their own personal freedoms and as we've seen in the UK with the controversy over whether we should wear masks or not amongst some of the population people don't like that did you have pushback on some of the measures you were asking people to take and if you did have pushback how did you manage it that's a very good question probably Bahrain also is different in two parts one of them we didn't implement a complete lockdown that, you know, other countries, they have did. Actually, we did a kind of partial lockdown intermittent. And it's really very partial. So during this pandemic, believe me, we were living very, very normal. Everybody went to work. You know, we can buy whatever we buy. The major services are, are there. The major, like, finances, you know, departments were there open. So we have a partial lockdown where we have to stop a little bit of the services, especially like the stores and the restaurants for two weeks and open them again two weeks. And that lasted only for a short time. So we never had a complete lockdown. Looking at that part, we want the full cooperation of the people. And actually with the media campaign that we did, we really depend on the people of Bahrain, whether residents or citizens. And if you see the, you know, the, the trade name for our campaign is Aware Community. 
So we based in giving enough information for them, and we were just giving information for them all the time, 24 hours, to make them partner with us. We are not giving something, it's not from me to them, but it's, we are all in it, we are all in it. So people were you know, actually uh, wearing masks because they want to, they were listening to us. We have a press conference every week. You know, I am one of the spokespersons. So we have every week one press conference. Initially, it was two to three per week, just to make sure that we convey all these messages to the public. And actually, we didn't have no resistance. Actually, people were looking for any instruction, and they were very helpful and very cooperative. So it's, I think it's just getting everybody in alignment with you as much as you can, give them the true information, and you know, seek the help of them to make it successful as a plan. Thank you. And you're listening to the CMEC podcast with me, Charlotte Leslie, and I'm talking to Professor John Ashton, the public health expert, and Dr. Jamila Al-Saman, consultant in infectious diseases, geriatrics and internal medicine at the Salmania Medical Complex in Bahrain, about the work they're doing together to coordinate Bahrain's response to the coronavirus. Now, Professor Ashton, we've just heard from Dr. Jamila that in comparison to the UK's lockdown, the Bahraini lockdown was shorter and less hard. Why is that? And how could Bahrain get away with, if you like, a much shorter, softer lockdown? It all comes back, Charlotte, to the testing, to doing testing in the volume and at scale and early on so that there was a real understanding of where the virus was circulating and also acting promptly in stopping the Formula One race in March, in closing the schools until they were on top of it. So, Do you mind if I interrupt? When was the Formula One race scheduled for? What date? Because we had some controversy over sporting events that went ahead. Can you remember what date the Formula One was scheduled for? The Formula One race was scheduled to be about the third week in March, but the decision to postpone it was taken while I was there the first time when I had my debriefing meeting with the Crown Prince on the 24th of February, and it was one of my recommendations to him that the race shouldn't go ahead. At the same time, actually, interestingly, I was recommending that there should be the release of prisoners low security risk prisoners to reduce the overcrowding in the prison. And that was acted on within about three days. 900 prisoners were released from the prison. So, you know, that's a sort of environmental measure, which went along with other environmental measures, which were very important as well. I mean, the creation of a 4,000 capacity camp on, on one of the islands off Bahrain Island, very high standard, constructed in 10 days by the army, with three zones for triaging people who'd come off flights from different places so that they weren't mixing with the main population. And that that was a very important measure. But other environmental measures that were taken included the demolition of poor quality housing for immigrant workers and the construction of new accommodation blocks. You know, very prompt action on environmental things because this whole success, I think, depended on the testing, tracing, isolating, it depended on having a very comprehensive communication strategy, as we've just heard. And that's extended to regular communications to everybody who had iPhones telling them what to do, using that modern digital technology, 
communicating in all the language groups, having the regular press conferences, and very early on, setting up rebuttal for social media for fake news and monitoring the fake news and doing rebuttal from very early on. And then, of course, the other thing was the the 444 number had direct feed into the war room so that there was this live intelligence about what was going on in the community and where people were experiencing symptoms, irrespective of whether they'd been tested. So it's very comprehensive, very modern and very creative. John, you mentioned fake news and the importance of information. What kind of fake information was circulating and do do we know where it came from? No, I'm not on top of that, to be honest. I mean, I, I know that that was set up while I was there. But, you know, we've had all that sort of stuff going on internationally about whether the hydrochloroquine would work, different kinds of treatments or or the ideas that's been peddled that the, the virus has been engineered in a laboratory and or that this is from an outside agent or these kind of paranoid kind of um, messages which have been peddled on social media. So it's very important to nip those things in the bud and, and that was one of the strands of the intervention. Thank you. Dr Jamila, looking at Bahrain's death rates, it's one of the lowest in the GCC. It's very low. How did you bring that about? Why is that? I think that comes to the, the same strategy that we're talking about, which is testing, tracing and treat. Because as early you do the testing for everybody without symptoms, even when they are in contact with people, you get them earlier in the disease. You give them to be isolated. You prevent the transmission to the other people or who are the high-risk elderly people who are having other high-risk factors, you know, like diabetes, heart problem. So once you get them tested early, get them early in the disease, isolate them, prevent the transmission to other people, and start even investigation and medication. Most of the what we have in the world, little proven medication, actually it helps. And what is unique about the COVID-19 treatment is different treatment protocol at different stage of the disease. And we know that once you get to the severe stage and you have later presentation, it's probably a little bit harder to get them recovered. But that's what we did. We tried to do it earlier. And this is go back, you know, when we said, it, you know, it's the leadership. And, you know, under the Supreme Health Council, which Professor Ashton just mentioned, we have the National Task Force clinical team, which is headed by Sheikh Mohammed Khalifa, who is the chairperson of the Supreme Health Council. Actually, we met with the top authority from all the departments, Ministry of Defense, from Ministry of Interior, other, you know, responsible, the minister. So we talk every day we've been meeting for the last, actually, seven months, daily meeting, just to make sure that we are updated, everybody on the same, and make decisions at the same time to make sure. And at the same time, all of these measures are being followed with a clinical, clinical parameter and assessment parameter to know where we are. We are usually looking back and seeing our number. For example, one of the measures that we are looking at, how many contacts we are doing per, per case. So one case, we trace the contact, even if they are 50 or 100, if they went to somewhere, visit a friend, or they are working. So we trace everybody around them. We see the number of admission to the hospital, the number of the ICU admission. We don't want it to increase, and that very, was a very important factor for us, how many severe cases and how many, because 
we will we built ICUs and probably Professor Ashton mentioned about the field hospital with 4,000 beds. We have another field ICUs with a capacity of 300 ICU beds, which were built even within seven to 10 days each, just to make sure if we have this number, we'll be ready for it. The rate of bed occupancy, we actually measured every day to make sure we have enough beds and we are not overloading our healthcare worker, make sure that we have everything ready for our patient. The rate of recovery, every day we have it in our morning report, how many recovered, how many discharged, and if there is any mortality to be discussed in detail, there is a separate committee under the National Task Force which looks for the mortality and discuss all the details and make sure that every patient receives the best care of treatment. Thank you. Professor Ashton, do you have anything to add on why Bahrain's death rates are so low? I think that they were very quick to connect to best practice globally. Initially, learning from the Chinese, they were in contact with the Chinese. And as the treatments evolved and as lessons were learned, they changed the treatment protocols. As we've just heard, the earliness of treatment was very important, particularly people who had risk factors like diabetes and obesity and long-term conditions. Starting them on medication very early seems to have paid dividends of, of the promptness. And they were able to do that because they created the extra capacity in intensive care. So they had plenty of capacity. They've never been up to full capacity, uh, up to full occupancy. They really created the capacity. So what we've had here as an intelligence-led and proactive approach, they've also been part of the global research network. It was one of the things I was able to facilitate with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, who were involved in that as well. So they're all sharing their experience internationally on researching the treatments as the treatments have evolved. And I think that's paid dividend. They've had a fantastically low death rate from the cases. It's really quite remarkable. So saying that, that strong international cooperation on managing this is essential. And that, yeah, and that's, you know, if you go back to the public health uh, emergency of international concern declaration that Tedros announced on the 30th of January, a public health emergency of international concern requires countries to share their experience, to learn from each other and to take concerted action. And Bahrain did all of that just as a small country. It played the part of a Premier League team, really, I would say. Wow. Can, one thing that strikes me listening to both of you speaking so clearly about this is that whilst you can have good intentions for acting early, if your procurement goes amiss and you can't get the the kit you need, those good intentions don't go anywhere. And one of the challenges that the UK has faced has been on procurement, whether it be a ventilators, PPE. How did Bahrain manage to get its kit in so quickly? Professor Ashton. Well, I think there's two aspects to this. I mean, one of the things I mentioned earlier was the the need to have more PCR machines, testing machines. Now, they are mostly made in Switzerland and Germany, and it was necessary to get the orders in quickly, as the UK found out, because by the time it wanted to order them, it was right at the bottom of the queue. And Bahrain got in at the front of the queue in February to order more machines. But when it came to the reagents and enzymes and the swabs, indeed, as well, you need for doing the testing, then I, I think what was important there was Bahrain's relationship with Saudi Arabia. 
which has a, a well-developed pharmaceutical industry and supply chain for those kind of things. So they were able to source those from Saudi. And I think that was the, the point there. I think the, the UK situation, I think we will get to the bottom of it one day, but it looks as though the fact that we'd cut ourselves adrift from the European Union procurement was a problem. And it meant that we weren't able to procure what we needed as expeditiously as we should have done. Thank you. Now, I'm going to finish off by asking you both the same question, and that's going to be, what lessons have have you learnt and what would you do differently with hindsight if, heaven forbid, this happens again? Dr Jamila, I'll I'll start with asking you that. What lessons have you learnt and is there anything with hindsight that you would do differently? Well, a major lesson that we actually learned, and I think everybody who works within our team or even within the COVID-19, he he believes in it and he can conquer what I'm saying, is that is the leadership commitment in any pandemic. It's really, it's really crucial. It's very crucial element. And having a high intelligent leadership in our country with the leadership of his royal highness made a big difference. The planning that we are talking about and even the question that you raised about what we need for medical equipment, masks and testing and everything, believe it or not, that has been actually addressed by His Royal Highness from January for the next one to two years in Bahrain and a highest number for what probably we are going to see. That's what you need, that kind of vision to plan forward and make sure everything is good. The other major element that you know I think is how to work in as a team. It's very, very important how to harmonize all these efforts. You know, we were all working together, whatever ministry or governmental or non-governmental, everybody was doing their part to put in one plan. So working as a team and being a team player is a major successful factor. And I think, you know, passing through this experience and we have all the action that has been taken in Bahrain, it's really for us. I'm not saying even sharing it because we have a lot of experience sharing it with other international, by international collaboration with other countries, whether in the region or internationally, where we presented what we have done in Bahrain. For us, we learned, and I think we are ready or more than ready to face, to complete what we are doing with COVID-19. And if anything happens or for the next pandemic, it happens. We learned a lot in the technical, logistic and the steps how to plan forward and how to address the major elements to make it successful. And if something I'll do differently, I don't think so. I really, the, as much as it's busy and we've been working for the last seven months, you know, without any really rest or day off, it's been very interesting, very enjoyable because we are seeing the positive outcome of it and we are helping saving people, saving people and saving lives actually. Oh, well, Dr. Jamila, after such an extraordinary few months of such hard work, our special thanks to you for taking the time to come and speak to us. It, it really has been fascinating. And um, I'm going to ask Professor Ashton, and I know, Professor Ashton, you've got a book on COVID coming out soon. I wonder if any of the lessons that you've learned from Bahrain and anything you might do differently might feature in that. Well, there's a chapter about Bahrain in it. So News from Bahrain, the chapter's called. But the book's called Blinded by Corona, and it'll be published at the end of August by Gibson Square Press. But I'd just like to say, I mean, it's it's so interesting that Dr. Jamila says how enjoyable it's been. That's quite remarkable to be able to say that. The worst public health challenge for 100 years, and Dr. Jamila's able to say it's been enjoyable because they've done so well 
And I think she's touched on most of the key elements. I mean, leadership, communications, intelligence, teamwork, and planning is the other thing. I, I think one thing that was clear at the beginning is that there wasn't a great tradition of uh, emergency exercising in Bahrain. And I think that's something that would be to take away for future. I mean, in a way, they were coming at this from a standing start, and they did remarkably well. And the, the other thing is that, and this was clearly well understood by the Crown Prince, is that there's a lot of talk in the UK about the economy versus public health, whereas clearly the Crown Prince understood and understands that you don't have a vibrant economy if you don't invest in public health. There were decisions that had to be made to balance the two, not least with shutdown and partial shutdown and so on. And uh, I know he was concerned about the impact on the economy. But investing in public health is an investment in a healthy economy because countries that haven't done well with the public health will take longer to recover with their economies as a result of this. Professor Ashton, thank you very much indeed. So if I'm right to summarise, it's an appetite for criticism, strong, clear leadership, strong international collaboration and very early planning that are the key components in, in Bahrain's success so far in managing corona. Thank you so very much to, to both of you. It's been an extremely traumatic few months for the entire world. And it's a huge privilege to have both of you who've played such an enormous role in Bahrain's management of the pandemic with us at CMEC today. And thank you both for all your work in showing how a pandemic can be managed in optimal ways. So on behalf of everyone at the Conservative Middle East Council, I'd like to say thank you so much to you both for your time. And thank you to all our listeners for listening. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honour. Thank you.